0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I want to start by saying thanks to Ivan and the worship team for leading us this morning. It is always a blessing for me to be led in worship, since I'm usually on the worship team. So it's really kind of refreshing uh, for me just to be uh, led in worship, and the team sounded great today. And I, I am excited to be preaching Uh, I'm excited about this series that we're in through the life of David, a series called After God's Own Heart. And Pastor Gerald wonderfully opened up the series for us last week by preaching and sort of unpacking for us uh, that verse in the book of Acts where David is described as a man after God's own heart. I preached, I think, a year ago here, uh, last July, when uh, Todd, you know, goes on vacation in July, and I, I had my first opportunity to preach here last July, and I'm just delighted to have discovered that I wasn't barred forever from preaching again <laughs> at Calvary. It's, it's encouraging. And all the other cool thing about July is we do this cool thing where we, we give the children's ministry workers the month of July off. So they can have a much-needed break, and it gives our kids a chance to come up for these family services that we have all month. So welcome, kids. Uh, I think this is a great, great thing that we do. I, I'm all for it. However, it does put me in the very delicate position this morning of having to try to figure out how to preach the story of David and Bathsheba in a family-friendly way, (laughs) some well-meaning friends have suggested that I might take the VeggieTales approach, (laughs) (laughs) employing the metaphor of the rubber ducky, which is not entirely without merit, but uh, I don't think it'll come to that, uh, because we'll see that the the main point that we're going to take from the story is not found in the sordid details of chapter 11 of Second Samuel, but rather in the, um, the exchange that happens between David and the prophet Nathan in chapter 12, which is where we're going to be spending most of our time. So why don't we grab our Bibles, pick up a Bible. If you didn't uh, bring one with you, there are pew Bibles in the rack right in front of you. Turn to Second Samuel chapter 12. What I'll do with chapter 11 is I'll just give us kind of a flyover summary of chapter 11, not drilling down too far on any of the details there, just giving us sort of a backdrop so we know what's going on, so that we can hit the ground running when we get to chapter 12. All right, so here's my Cliff Notes version of chapter 11 of Second Samuel. The Israelite army is off fighting a war. King David is at home in his palace. One afternoon, he goes out for a stroll on the roof of the palace. He sees, he looks out, he sees a woman bathing. She's very beautiful. He sends someone to find out who that is. Comes back with the information that this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David knows who Uriah is because Uriah is a well-respected, high-ranking official in David's army, kind of part of David's inner circle. So David really knows him. But this doesn't stop David from having Bathsheba brought to him. And in the uh, interest of family friendliness, I will simply say that they spent the night together. And then in the morning, she goes home. David thinks that's the end of this whole affair, except for Bathsheba soon discovers that she's pregnant with David's child and sends word to him to let him know that. And so David comes up with a plan to cover up what he has done and to make it appear that Uriah is the father of this child. He does that by calling Uriah home from the battlefield and saying to him, Uriah, take a break, relax, go home, spend the night with your wife. Uriah won't do it. He doesn't feel like it's right for him to be engaging in that sort of thing while the Israelite army is out on the battlefield struggling in the trenches. And so he's determined to keep himself pure, Until the war is over, he says no. David tries to pressure him into it. He says no, thereby ruining uh, David's plan to protect himself. So David comes up with a more severe plan, which involves killing Uriah. He sends word to Joab, the commander of the army, and says, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines of the fiercest battle and then pull back from him so that he's out there alone and he will be struck down. And killed. And this is exactly what happens. Uriah is killed, and then David calls for Bathsheba once again to be brought to him, this time taking her as his wife. She soon bears him a son, a son which was conceived in adultery when Uriah was still alive, but now is has the appearance of being the legitimate child of David and Bathsheba, his new bride, widow of the recently departed Uriah. Scandal averted, problem solved, all's well that ends well, right? Except there's one little problem. And we find it on the last, the last verse of chapter 11 there. If you look at 11, verse 27, the second half of the verse, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's chapter 11 in a nutshell. That's the backstory. That brings us to chapter 12. I want to read verses 1 through 15. So why don't we stand together for the reading of God's word? Second Samuel, chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife." Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this is a pretty dark story, isn't it? David does some horrible things. He really goes to the dark side there in chapter 11, breaks a handful of the Ten Commandments, starts by coveting his neighbor's wife, follows that up with adultery. Then there's an elaborate plan of lying and deceit to cover up the adultery. And finally, he resorts to murder, like premeditated, cold-blooded murder. That's pretty dark. The, the hero of our uh, preaching series here comes across as a pretty unsavory character in this story. This is not the behavior of a good guy, which raises for us a pretty obvious and perplexing question. Given the theme of our series... How can David possibly be a man after God's own heart if he does such horrible things, right? I thought the whole reason we're studying David's life is because David was really good. He was a good example of a good guy doing a good job of being good. And if we want to, God's favor to be on our, our lives like it was on David's life, we need to be as good as David was, right? That's how this whole thing works. But we run into a problem at chapter 11 of David's life here because we see him doing some really bad things, things that for most of us in this room would feel like I wouldn't even be capable of some of the stuff that he did there. You know, I'm no saint, but murder? That's very serious. So how can... David be described as a man after God's own heart if he does such terrible things? The answer to that question is very simple, but it has profound implications, not only for our understanding of David's life and how to make sense out of this series, it has profound implications for our understanding of who God is and how we're supposed to have a relationship with him. And the answer is simply this. The key to God's heart is not goodness, it's repentance. The key to God's heart is not goodness, it's repentance. I looked up repent in the dictionary. Not not like a physical dictionary. We don't use those anymore. They're too heavy. But I just, I googled it. And here's what it said Repent, to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing. Sincere regret and remorse are about the only things that David has going for him at this point in his life. Because if being a good person is the key to God's heart, then David is cut off from God's heart forever, he's in serious trouble. The only thing to his credit that he does during this whole dark episode is that when he is confronted with his sin, he cops to it, he owns it, and he repents. Keep your finger here, but flip forward to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 gives us a more complete picture of what David's repentance really looked like. At the top of Psalm 51, there's this little description that we see. It says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this tells us not only that David wrote the psalm, it places the writing of this psalm right at the point in the story that we're looking at. This is something that David wrote as an expression of what was going on in his heart and mind after the prophet Nathan called him out on his sin. And it says, we're just going to look at the first three verses right now. It says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, David is not only admitting his sin, He seems really grieved by it. There's a heaviness in the words that you can can feel. He says, my sin is ever before me. It's like something that's nagging at him, won't leave him alone, keeps him up at night. He uses terms like, wash me, cleanse me from my sin. So the guilt of his sin to him is something that it's like a stain on his soul, And he himself can't get rid of it. He needs God to do it. So there's this desperation with which he is calling on God for mercy. Oh, God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. See, David knew God well enough to know that God is a God of love, that God is a merciful God. God and that God is willing to forgive sin if we but come to him in repentance. See, David, in faith, because he believed God's word in the Old Testament scriptures, David, in faith, was looking forward to the Redeemer that was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures, just the same way that we now look back in faith on the Redeemer that we see in the pages of Scripture. And when that Redeemer came, we see in the Gospels, Jesus came, and when he began his earthly ministry, what was the message that he began to preach? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus preached a gospel of repentance, which is the same gospel of repentance that David believed and was writing about a 1,000 years before Jesus came along. So David was accepted by God on the same basis that we today are accepted by God, not by uh, following the law, not by proving that you can be good enough to deserve God's favor, but by having faith in the mercy of God bringing our sins before him, and knowing that he will lovingly forgive us when we repent. So if repentance is the key to God's heart, we're going to see what we can learn about repentance from looking at the way that David repented here. Uh, And that's what we'll be doing for the rest of our time here this morning. And what we're going to see are four characteristics of true repentance. Repentance. Four characteristics of true repentance. The first one is this. True repentance requires dropping your defenses. When David repents, he doesn't offer excuses for his sin. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't blame anybody else for it. He drops his defenses and takes full responsibility for his actions. You know When when, when Nathan says to him, you are the man, and he pronounces judgment against him, we don't see David saying, what? It uh, it wasn't my fault. She shouldn't have been bathing where I could see her. She's a very beautiful woman. Have you seen this woman? This is not my fault. How, How could I resist? And Uriah, don't get me started on Uriah. I tried. I gave him an out. He wouldn't take it. I said, go home. He wouldn't go home. I'm the king. He won't do what I said. It's his own fault. I know that my uh, version of David sounds like a bad Jerry Seinfeld impression, but (laughs) just try to overlook that and just see the point of what I'm saying, which is that David was able to drop his defenses, which is something for a lot of us can be a very difficult thing to do because being defensive is sort of like an involuntary reflex sometimes to... Criticism, like any accusation of wrongdoing, and we just like bristle, shift the blame to somebody else, defend ourselves, and we uh, that there's that, a reflex that we need to override in order to achieve uh, true repentance. It kind of reminds me of a, a few years ago when I—I I was. Sick, I had a sore throat for several days. It hurt to swallow. I was worried. I went to the doctor. They said, Well, we got to see if it's strep throat. And so, in order to find that out, we need to swab a sample of saliva from the back of your throat. And so, the, the nurse comes at me with this q tip that's like a foot long and is like, Open up and say, Ah! And as soon as that Q-tip goes in there, I'm like, the gag reflex kicks in. And she's like, oh, let's try that again. (laughs) So after almost vomiting on the nurse about five times in a row, she's finally like, here, you take the Q-tip. See if you can get far enough back there to get me a sample, and we can test it and see if you have strep throat. So eventually, I did. But it took some doing to override that reflex, the gag reflex. Usually, the gag reflex is a good thing. There are reasons why we have that. But in this case, it was defending me against something that I needed, something that was going to help me. And similarly, our reflex of self-justification and defensiveness is something that defends us against the repentance that we actually need. It defends us from being able to really be honest about what we've done and take responsibility for it. Maybe for some of us, the word sin is something in and of itself that we kind of recoil from. People have a problem with that word. It makes you defensive. Overcoming that reflex of defensiveness is the first step to becoming a person after God's own heart. And we have to ask ourselves, am I quick to become defensive? Am I slow to take responsibility for my actions? Do I have a tendency to justify sinful behavior in my life? First characteristic of true repentance, true repentance requires dropping your defenses. The second characteristic of true repentance, is that true repentance is willing to accept the consequences of sin, willing to accept the consequences of sin. Have you ever had somebody apologize to you for something, but you get the feeling they don't really mean it, they're just trying to escape some negative consequences of their actions? Perhaps as a parent, you have experienced this. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. I'm s- Dad, I'm so sorry. I did a bad thing. I'll never do it again. All right, I forgive you, but you're still grounded. What? <laughs> That's not fair. Ah, so you weren't really sorry, were you? You were just trying to get out of the grounding. Kind of casts... A shadow of suspicion over the genuineness of that uh, repentance. When David repented of his sin, there were still consequences. Uh, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan did not immediately say to him, Oh, good then everything's going to be rainbows and lollipops for you from here on out. It wasn't like that. He said, yes, the Lord forgives you, you will not die, but there will still be consequences. Uh, The child born to you shall die. And here's another quick flyover summary for you. The flyover summary of the rest of chapter 12 is that that's exactly what happens. The child gets sick, and dies. When the child became ill, David called out on the Lord to try to change God's mind about that. He fasted, he prayed, he was face down overnight calling out on God, Uh, but then the child died. And as soon as David learned that the child had passed away, it says David arose and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. The death of the child did not cause David to become angry with God or to question the goodness of God or to renounce his faith in God because he saw it as a consequence of his own sin and he was willing to accept it as such. Some of you, I'm sure, probably know who the son of Sam is. Have you heard of this guy called the son of Sam? He was a notorious mass murderer in New York City who, in the summer of 1977, killed a bunch of people. killed eight people, was caught, convicted, sentenced to multiple life sentences in prison, where he still is today. But according to the terms of his plea, he became eligible for parole in the year 2002, 25 years after he was sentenced. But something happened. In 1987, son of Sam, whose real name is David Berkowitz, he got saved in prison. Somebody gave him a Bible. And he started reading it. And he started to become convicted of his sin. And he repented and believed the gospel, became a Christian. And then when his parole hearing started to come around in 2002, he wrote a letter to the governor of New York asking to cancel the hearing. This is a quote from that letter. He said, In all honesty, I believe that I deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life. I have, with God's help, long ago, come to terms with my situation, and I have accepted my punishment. Since then, every two years, this guy is eligible for a new parole hearing, and every time that comes around, he consistently refuses to pursue his release. Now, I don't know David Berkowitz. Personally, I've never met him. I can't vouch for the genuineness of his faith. But I can tell you that his behavior regarding his parole is definitely consistent with what true repentance is supposed to look like, a willingness to accept the consequences of sin. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to take my lumps When I've done something wrong, even if I'm repentant, am I so grieved over sin that I see it as just that there would be consequences to that? True repentance is willing to accept the consequences of sin. That's the second characteristic. The third characteristic of true repentance is this. True repentance is a lifestyle. We sometimes tend to think of it as an event, but true repentance is a lifestyle. We, we, we might see it as something that happened, something that we had to do in order to become a Christian, and we don't have much use for it after that. It has served its purpose. We might treat it like a, a password that we use to log in to the Christian life. But then we're not going to need it anymore. Funny thing, though, about these passwords, you tend to need them more than you think you're going to. Because sometimes your computer tells you that your updates are ready to install, or that uh, you need to restart your computer for whatever reason you weren't anticipating, and you're going to need to know that password. And if you forget that password, you're in trouble. You've got to jump through all kinds of hoops in order to get yourself back to the place where you can just type in those characters that need to be there. And it's a little like that with repentance. Yes, you need it to get started in your Christian life. But you're going to want to keep it handy because you're going to have to keep logging in because you're going to continue to sin, this is the reality of, the, of, of being a believer, you repent and you are forgiven positionally. But functionally, you still have this sin nature that you wrestle with all the time. And part of the sanctification process is that you sin, God convicts you of it, You repent of that sin, he gives you victory over that thing, and then you move on to the next thing and God convicts you of one of the multitude of character flaws and habitual sins that you uh, commit. And so it is an essential part of the ongoing work that God wants to do in our lives, I will point out that when David came to this dark period in his life where he sinned with Bathsheba and, and had Uriah killed, he wasn't a kid anymore. He was a full-grown adult who had been walking with God for years. He had risen to the exalted position of king. He was a seemingly spiritually mature person. He had written psalms already. He'd been so filled with God's spirit that he had been written divinely inspired literature that we would read today and consider this is God's word. This is how close to God he was. This is how far along he was in his walk with the Lord. But as we see in chapter 11, he's still capable of making horrible decisions and finding himself in desperate need of repentance. David's life demonstrates for us that repentance needs to be an ongoing practice in the life of a believer. Uh, John Calvin describes this as the race of repentance. Calvin as in the the guy who invented Calvinism, you know. (laughs) Perhaps you're more familiar with his greatest hit, Calvinism. In his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote this about Uh, the race of repentance that is the Christian life. This is a great quote from him. He said, "'The Lord is pleased completely to restore "'all those he adopts to the inheritance of life, "'and this restoration is not accomplished "'in a single moment or day or year, "'but by continual and sometimes even tardy advances. "'The Lord destroys the carnal corruptions of his chosen, "'purifies them from pollution,' and consecrates them as temples to himself, renewing their senses to real purity, that they may employ their whole life in the exercise of repentance and know that this warfare will be terminated only by death. I assert that as far as anyone approaches to a resemblance of God, so far the image of God is displayed in him. And that believers may attain to this, God assigns them the race of repentance to run during their whole life. And so we ask ourselves Am I running a race of repentance? Am I sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and willing to respond with humble repentance? This is the third characteristic of true repentance it's a lifestyle. The fourth and final characteristic of true repentance that we'll look at this morning is this. True repentance knows that all sin ultimately is against God. All sin is against God. See, when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, the first words out of David's mouth were very interesting if you look at the wording of what he said I have sinned against the Lord. You might think that he he would be more conscious of the sin that he had committed against Uriah. But his first inclination of his heart was to acknowledge his sin before God. It is God's word that I have broken. And it is this relationship with God that I have potentially damaged by my actions. To David, his fellowship with God was the greatest, most precious thing in his life. And he was grieved at the thought that maybe he had broken that. See, although that... And in that sense, although David was, was breaking and had broken... Uh, commandments, David was displaying here that in his heart, he was fulfilling what Jesus described as the first and greatest commandment, which is simply to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And so this intimacy with God that David had... uh, he was grieved at the thought of breaking it. And we see that. If you're still in in Psalm 51, I don't know if you had flipped back, but let's go back to Psalm 51. We read the first three verses. Let's look, first of all, at verse four, which says, and and David is is in the middle of just like pouring out his heart to God and begging God for, for, for God's forgiveness. And he says there in verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He sees his sin as being against God. And he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So there we see that quality of being willing to accept the consequences of his sin. Whatever judgment you pronounce against me, God, it's right, I'll take it, if it'll help to restore the relationship. And then jump down to, Uh, verse 11. In verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's saying, God, I don't want to lose you. I might lose everything, but don't let me lose you. Your presence has been the greatest source of joy in my life, and I don't want to lose that. Remember, David is the one who wrote Psalm 16, which is this beautiful psalm that says, in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand, God, our pleasures forevermore. David loved the presence of God, and now he's thinking, I've blown it, I've lost it, I've committed these terrible sins, and God has had it with me, and he's going to cast me away from his presence. So he calls out to God, please don't do that. Don't cast me away from your presence. And here's the good news of this whole story, is that God did not cast him away from his presence. As we will see unfolding in the coming weeks of this series, that the story of David's life testifies to the fact that his fellowship with God was renewed. The joy of his salvation was restored. And he continued to walk, sometimes through valleys, but he continued to walk in the presence of God. This is good news not only for David, but this is good news for us because it says to us, no matter where you're at with God, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think might be separating you from him. No matter how far away from him you may seem to be, the path to his presence is very simple and it's available to all of us. Maybe you've never even had a relationship with God. Maybe you've never been a person of faith and God just seems so far removed to you that you wouldn't even know where to begin. Or on the other hand, you're a person maybe who has been a Christian for a long time. You have experienced the joy of fellowship with God. But now you've come to a place where that relationship seems to be broken for, because of sin in your life, be it some huge thing that happened or some little persistent habitual sin that just makes God feel far away. Wherever you are on that spectrum, this truth is for you. The key to God's heart is not goodness. You don't need to earn your way back into his good graces. You don't need to clean yourself up first in order to get right with God. The key to his heart is repentance, which means coming to him now with the stain of sin still on you and saying, here I am, Lord, wash this away. Take it from me. I can't do that, but you can and knowing full well that just as he did for David, he will do that for you in his mercy. This is the good news of the gospel. Forgiveness is available by faith, through grace, and the first step toward that is repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel which tells us that we are not justified by works. We are saved by grace through faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. We believe that. We accept it. We ask that you would teach us to be a people who repent not only a people who have repented, but a people who are continually willing to repent as your spirit convicts us of of sin, not only as a way of eventually getting into heaven, but also as a way of experiencing and savoring your presence in our lives now. We invite the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit within us, Lord. We are grateful that you love us enough to do that. We praise you for your steadfast love, for your abundant mercy, for your astounding forgiveness, and for your truly amazing grace to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.